Hey guys, this is Mike Berdan from Uniform, and you are listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. This is your host, Keith, and we are back with a brand new episode. On the show tonight, the one, the only, George Chamberlain. You know him from Autumn. You know him from Ritual Earth. We talk about both. We talk about his history in the scene. We talk about Bucks County. We talk about everything. It's a really excellent conversation. Strap in for that. That's coming up soon. And some reminders, folks. Support me. The new scene. Here's what I need, okay? Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen up. I need Apple Podcast reviews, okay? We're up to 67. I want to get over 100. I need Spotify reviews, okay? We're at 54. I want to get over 100. And I need you to get me there. I mean, come on. What are we? I mean, what is this? Are we in a relationship? Is this just for fun? Is this just fun for you? Is that what this is? Come on, give me the reviews. We've got to get over 100. We have to. We have to. You can also support the new scene by purchasing our shirt. Head over to Deathwish Inc., search the new scene. The shirt will pop up. You want it, you need it. It's a great shirt. Send me a picture of you in the shirt and I will post it. Thank you so much for your continued support. Also, I always forget to announce this, but you can email me at newscenepod at iodinerecords.com. If you have a story to share, if you just want to say what's up, feel free to email me. Sometimes we share that stuff on the air. And support our sponsor, Iodine Recordings. There's lots of stuff going on over at Iodine. There's a new smoker fire track up at New Noise. You can check that out. There's new one-line drawing merch. There's new signings. There's new records. There's all kinds of great stuff going on. Wonderful label. Check them out. Iodinerecords.com. Okay, so let's see what's going on. There's some new music. I have heard an advance of Immutable, the new album by Meshuggah. Ooh, now, folks, I love it. It's incredible. My favorite tracks, Ligature Marks and Kaleidoscope. This has a little bit of something for everyone. Slightly more chill songs, heavier songs. If you're a fan of Meshuggah, you're going to love it. Check it out. So check back in with me at segment three. We're going to talk about the Oscars. We're going to read a new review. We're going to talk about the departure of Tommy. I'm going to check in to tell you how I'm doing. But right now, we're going to speak to George Chamberlain of Ritual Earth. Enjoy.
right, folks, we're here now with George Chamberlain. George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And as we say, you know, first time, long time. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, we were talking a lot before I hit record, and we have so much in common, and we're going to get to that. And we also talked about how we almost know each other. Uh, but first, George, I have to ask you, how are you doing today? Today? Well, I had a long day at work, a lot of conference calls, but I, I, I'll be honest, I've been looking forward to this all day, and it's kept my spirits up, and I'm just happy to be here talking to you guys. So thank you for asking. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, it's great to have you here. What do you do for your job? I, I work for Amtrak. I'm in procurement, and um, it's uh, strategic services. So I, if you're familiar with what a procurement department does, I, I don't cut purchase orders. I actually write contracts, and I conduct formal solicitations. Uh, so every project I'm on is like 68 weeks. I'm usually working like 10 to 15 at a time, and it's it, it can be pretty intense. Today was one of those days where I had six meetings uh, an hour each, which left me two hours to get any work done. And uh, that's not untypical, uh, you know, for, for what I do. But yeah, I, I was at Amtrak for eight years and I left for a year and a half and I came back this past April. So I missed the first wave of COVID when it hit the rail. And yeah, I've been back since April. And I, and I got to say, I love what I do. I just wish I had more time in the day to do it. Yeah. You know, your job does not sound too different from mine. Oh, yeah. We have we have great difficulty with our procurement department, though. So uh <laughs> Yeah. But listen, they, they, you got to have – I get it. You got to have everything in place before the orders are placed. Oh, yeah. And for us being quasi-government and, and you know getting our grant agreements and, and making sure we're not violating any of those grant agreements, keep in mind we use taxpayer dollars. So there's a lot of uh, hurdles that we have for some of the simplest of tasks. And it can be it can be draining, but in the end, it's always rewarding, at least for me. Absolutely. So – you grew up in Bucks County, I, yes? Yeah, I did. I uh, I originally was I was born in Levittown, and I know you guys are familiar with the area. I went to Bristol Township School District. Um, I moved around a lot as a young kid. I ended up in Morrisville for a couple years, and then I graduated out of Truman. We uh, we moved back to the Bristol area, and uh, I, I was there until ninety two until I moved out. Bristol Township or Bristol, the other Bristol? Yeah, Bristol Township, Levittown area. When people are from Bristol, it's like township or borough. I was township. <laughs> yeah, never the borough. <laughs> <laughs> the realest of the real were from the borough. Yeah, oh, that's true. The hardest of yeah. the hard were from the borough. Exactly. Was going to Truman High School rough? Truman has a bit of a reputation. Uh, Truman has a reputation. It actually wasn't rough. I, I graduated... In 1991, and at the time, I mean, there were so many different groups of kids and different cliques, but unlike any other school I went to prior to that, they all intermingled with each other and crossed over. So I, I had a lot of friends in different groups, and it was, I don't know, I loved, I actually loved Truman when I went there. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's its exciting to have you here because you're part of uh, Bucks County scene history as well, it seems, and that's how our, our show started. So when did you discover punk rock, hardcore, what was your entry point and where? So when we moved from Levittown to Morrisville, uh, the, the first thing that happened is I was introduced to this kid, you Rich uh, Suckliff, who later on, him and I formed, you know, Forethought and Autumn. Uh, the first record he let me borrow of his was a new record at the time, uh, Rain and Blood you know, by Slayer. And uh, yes. Yeah, so originally we started looking out for like metal albums. And you can only go to the mall so many times before you pick out stuff based off of title and cover. And one day uh, we were flipping through the radio stations. And keep in mind, we're in Marsville. 
or Mooresville, and um, we discovered uh, WTSR, which at the time was Trenton State Radio. And it's a college radio station, and they played everything you could possibly imagine. And we had discovered which DJs played metal. And a lot of these DJs would, would play like metal, punk rock, and hardcore. And uh, they made the horrible mistake of saying their phone number. You can call in and request songs. <laughs> so, yeah. And I mean, one day I'm sitting there and I'm listening to like, you know, this, and this is how we discovered like back then, keep in mind, this is late eighties. This is how we're discovering thrash bands, you know, like outside of like getting like a hip prayer magazine, we're listening here and discovering like, you know, forbidden and Voivod and all these other crazy thrash bands. And then this one song comes on and it's just this guy talking, then he screams. And then I'm like, this is, this is insane. Cause I remember thinking this is raw, but it's, they're talking about something more on my level. It's not like this metal thing where it's, you know, these absurd lyrics that, you know, that are cool, but I really couldn't relate to. So I, I called the station, like, what was that that you just played? And it was uh, In My Eyes by Minor Threat. So I was just like, play me more of that. And he played me Youth of Today, Government Issue, and all these other bands. And then that same hour, they started doing advertisements for City Gardens, which is just right across the bridge. So it became, you know, this thing where we decided to go to City Gardens to go see DRI. And uh, the opening band for DRI was this band called Sick of It All. And we just bought the Sick of It All cassette tape a week earlier, which was uh, Blood, Sweat, No Tears. And I mean, they, they stole the show. And from that point on, it was just like, we got to look more into this. What's going on here? And that's how we discovered the local scene. It happened really quick. Uh, we kept on going to City Gardens, and that was that was how we got into punk rock and hardcore. Nice. You know, so City Gardens was in Trenton, or like right over there? Yeah, it was right across the bridge, maybe a mile or two up the road up on Calhoun Street. So you discover punk rock, hardcore, you're into this thing. How do you decide you want to start playing? So Rich and I, Rich actually taught me how to play bass. Rich got a guitar for Christmas one year. We're still very young. We're like in junior high. And uh, I was like, well, if you're going to get a guitar, I, I should get a bass and we should you know, play together. So before we even discovered you know, punk rock and hardcore, we were trying to play along to like metal songs and just writing some like real simple stuff. And what's bizarre about this is that if you were into metal, then you immediately knew who the Misfits were because... In those days, you saw pictures of Metallica wearing Misfits and Sam Hain t-shirts. So we got started by learning Misfits songs, even though we were like going to be a metal band. And uh, over time, we just found a kid that played drums and we started jamming with him. And then by the time we discovered punk rock and hardcore, we kind of realized we're like, well, hey, you know, like, this is awesome. Let's do this and start putting it together. And in 1990, I went to school with this guy, Dan, who sang in all these bands. And we put together our first hardcore band called Unconditioned Response. And uh, we played, I think we played two, maybe three shows. And one was at the Unisound in Reading, PA. And from there, we just, we just got a, we got addicted to it. We kept going. Um, when that band broke up, we started Forethought and then Forethought became Autumn. And I feel like, I, and, I, and here we are 20 some years later, still doing it. Let's talk about Autumn coming together. Now you're moving from bass to vocals, yes? So we had a, it was, this was actually during the Forethought era. Um, we had scheduled to go record a seven inch for Forethought, and we decided just to originally flip the bass player and myself. Originally, I, I talked about starting another band because I really wanted to attempt singing. And you know, Rich had suggested, why don't I just try and sing for Forethought and move Rick, who was our singer then on the bass? And uh, he ended up quitting and, and leaving. But uh, yes, yeah, so I went in and I, I sang on the seven inch. And then, you know, later on, Forethought became Autumn. But uh, yeah, even on the, uh, the, the first couple Autumn releases, I actually 
played bass on as well. I just don't credit myself, or at least on some of the songs, because uh, I was part of the writing team at that point still, uh, when, musically anyway. By the way, how did you pull that off? Like if I was playing bass in a band and I was like, uh, I think I want to sing. Uh, you know, everyone would just be like, uh, yeah, shut up and play bass. How did the band then agree to this and then the singer leaves and you end up singing? Uh, I think what had happened is I had written one song for a new band and I played it for the guys. And then they were just like, oh, you're, you want to do that? Well, you could do that here. And that's pretty much what happened. And keep in mind that at that point in time, too, like hardcore was kind of changing. So some of the newer bands at the time were like Quicksand and, and Shelter, and it was becoming more melodic. And the earlier versions of the bands we were doing were still very like New York influenced, but like the older stuff. So when they realized what I wanted to do was more melodic, we just kind of brought it back in and did it within our band. And that's kind of the beginnings of when Forethought changed to Autumn. Uh, so the scene was changing, the landscape was changing, and you were on to kind of a new and exciting sound, and they were into that. Yeah, they, they were very into it. As a matter of fact, we actually auditioned a bunch of singers with this change in mind, and none of them worked out. And I had suggested once or twice before, like, hey, you know, hey guys, maybe I can sing. And, uh, <laughs> and, and they're like, and they did exactly what you said. You know what? You're actually okay on bass. You should just stick to that. And uh, I guess it's kind of like once you go out and you, you start to do something, you know, then all of a sudden, not only was it what I was doing is the motivation to do it that I thought that they saw as well. So Autumn is together now. You're on vocals. Had you sung a lot before that or were you just figuring this whole thing out? Oh, I was very much still figuring it out up until Autumn broke up, actually. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing and I, I tried to keep it very punk rock. Uh, a, a few, there were a few times it was suggested to me that, hey, you know, uh, vocal lessons might not be a bad idea. And I was like, that's not punk rock. You know, Ian McKay didn't get vocal lessons. I don't need vocal lessons. You know, so I, it, it took me a while to figure it out. But I mean, trial and error, you eventually do. You figure out what works for you. Or at least I thought I did at the time. Like, looking back now, I mean, yeah, I really wish I did get one or two lessons. I probably would have been a better vocalist at that point. But yeah, I, it was it was always figuring out because we were always changing as a band, too. So the requirements for vocals were changing as we were growing. What were the Bucks County hotspots at the time? For us, it was... Blue Fountain Diner, which segued into Great American Diner. And, uh, well, that's it, I guess. It's funny you should mention that, too. If you look at the back cover of the, the first Autumn record, the photograph of us is at Blue Fountain Diner at the counter. So ah. we were doing, yeah, we, were, we, we called it BFD. We were doing BFD like three or four nights a week. We would go in there and just order tea and bagels and just hang out and chat. And this was back in those days, the rack room was still open. I don't know if it's open now. It's, it was next door to Denny's, further down Route the 1. The pool hall. The pool hall, yeah. Yes. So we would, we would. here's what we would do. Here's a typical Friday night. We would go to the mall until the mall closed. and right. And then go to the rack room and uh, play, you know, play some pool and play some video games and then go to Blue Fountain Diner. And then around 4 o'clock in the morning, go to our friend Scott's house and hang out there until the sun came up. <laughs> yeah. I miss it. Yeah. I really oh, miss it. I it's funny. As I'm saying it now, I miss it. And I'm just like, I wouldn't last half that night now. Not even close. No, it, <laughs> I, I can be out till like 9, 30, 10. And then I'm like, I got to go home. That's it. <laughs> yeah. We, the wife and I were just watching an episode of Bob's Burgers with our daughter. And there's a scene in there where they're talking about like going out and doing an after hours thing. And, and uh, you know, Bob is just like, I, I think we're, I think we're uh, go home and go to bed type people. And I'm like, yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> That's where I'm at in my life now. 
So Autumn is together. We're figuring this thing out. What bands inspired you and what were you trying to accomplish? What were you trying to do as a band and personally? Uh, so as far as being inspired, I mean, even prior to Autumn, like some of our favorite bands, aside from like the New York scene, like we were huge into, you know, Sick of It All and, and uh, Killing Time and, and Judge was actually a new band at that point. But we were also huge fans of like Uniform Choice and Seven Seconds. And that's where I was getting some of my vocal cues from, right? Um, but by the time Autumn came around again, like all these new bands were popping up and everyone was incorporating their own spin and take on on what hardcore was. I'm trying to think of some bands like, yeah, again, there was the you know, Shelter and Quicksand Renew, that last bold seven inch, the Running Like Thieves record. And then, of course, the Turning Point split, all the later Turning Point stuff was awesome. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but there was a comp that came out around this time called Voice of the Voiceless. And it introduced us to all these Midwest bands that were just doing it differently. Um, Transcend it was our first introduction to Endpoint. Uh, Encounter, which was a, a Jersey band, but still we hadn't heard of them prior to that. Worlds Collide from DC. So all these bands were under this umbrella of doing something fresh and new, but still hardcore and still very much, you know, the spirit. And we just wanted to incorporate our own take as well. And, you know, we, we'd felt like prior to this, we may have been holding back because we were all metalheads prior to being into, into hardcore and everything. So we let all of the influences happen. And the end result is the end result. I mean, there was no real blueprint for what we were trying to do. It's just doing what came naturally. And, and as far as you know, lyrical content, a lot of bands around us were talking a lot about straight edge and veganism, and some bands were getting political. And for me as a vocalist, like I was new to singing and new to writing lyrics. So I, I was just like, well, you know, everyone else has this covered. I'm just going to talk about what I know, which is the, you know, at that point, the 18 years I'd been alive. So a lot of the lyrics were, were personal lyrics. And in the early days, uh, Mark and Rich helped contribute to the lyrical writing. So it was, you know, we came off as like this personal emo band, you know, uh, it's kind of funny now looking back at it. But the one thing I do want to say that if you go back to the the Autumn demo and even the 7-inch and you remove the vocals, they're metal songs. It's kind of funny when you think about it. But like whenever I listen to it now, especially with the process of this retrospective what we're putting together, I'm like, wow, we were actually very metal. I didn't, I don't think I realized it at the time. But looking back now, like, yeah, those guys had it going on. Were you vegan and straight edge at the time? Oh, yeah. I was a vegan <laughs> warrior. Uh, <laughs> and I would, I was the guy who gave everyone else shit for not being the vegan warrior in the band, too. Like, I remember getting like real pissed off if I found out someone was eating meat. Like, what are you doing? You know, like, don't you know that this is bad for you and bad for the environment? But yeah, I was very into it. I, I loved Earth Crisis when they came out and, and you know, what they were uh, talking about as well. And yeah, I, I was straight edge. And vegetarian for eight years, vegan for three to four of those years. Yeah, I never knew how people were going to react to it. I remember One King Down played in Bucks County, and we went to Suburban Diner with them afterwards. <laughs> and I, I was, like, terrified to order a chicken sandwich in front of them, but I did it anyway. Yeah, uh, so I, you hung out with Rob then, right? Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, the whole band was there. Yeah, uh, Rob and I, I, I first met Rob at a QE2 in Albany, and he actually took me out to eat when I was in Albany. He took me to a vegetarian falafel, well, not vegetarian, but he took me to a place where we got falafel, and we had stayed in touch over the years. So when One King Down came out, I was like, yeah, I'm going to come see you play, and, and they were awesome. I was like, wow, you, yeah. keep in mind, when I first met him, he was a little kid, and then to see him performing with One King Down, I was just blown away, and now he's, you know, he's, he's Rob. Great guy. Yeah, absolutely. 
okay, so Autumn is playing. Tell us about how things kind of heated up. Where were you playing? Well, how did things start to pick up? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, I want to say we recorded the demo and we were we were passing it out everywhere. And I think what happened was is it just got in the hands of like the right people. There was a lot of reviews that were very positive of the demo. And that led to other shows. And then uh, one thing or another, I, I can't remember how this came to be, but we got in touch with Victory Records at one point, and uh, we were talking to them about possibly doing something. And this is even in the the Autumn bio that's up on the Hellminded site. But they actually, uh, you know, Tony actually got us on our first festival, which was out in um, was that yeah the New Hope Hardcore Festival. Where was it? Madison, Wisconsin. And once we played that fest, all the doors started to open up for us because we got a lot of exposure. A lot of people uh, started giving us coverage. And then next thing we knew, it turned into that situation where we weren't trying to book shows anymore. We were getting asked to play a lot of shows. And that's when things just really started to take off. And we were playing every weekend, all summer long. And and yeah, I, I, I think that's like 94 is about when that happened. The other thing, too, is uh, we got very lucky. We somehow got an opening spot on a festival that was happening at G. Willikers, and it ended up being the Turning Point reunion. And that got oh, us. Wow. Yeah. And, and for me, I mean, I was a huge tw- Turning Point fan. Uh, you know, Skip was a huge influence on me vocally. So I was just like, wow, like we get to play with those guys? I was like, yeah. And uh, that was huge for us. You know, we got a lot of coverage on that, and people who didn't know who we were now knew who we were. We, we we were passing out demos left and right at that show. So I think that was a big thing for us, especially locally. So you saw original Turning Point lineup. Now, did they play Behind This Wall on Thursday, those seven-inch songs? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, they played everything you wanted to hear. And I mean, even though there was... And this is at... I don't know if you guys recall G. Willikers before it burnt down. It was at Pensacola, no. New Jersey. Oh, okay. Um, it's not the biggest place, but it's big enough. I... I I'm not good at judging like how many people were there, but this thing was packed wall to wall. And the entire time they played, the crowd just built this huge wall of people, everyone pointing and singing. And it was, it was insane. But yeah, they did every song that I wanted to hear. That must have been some show. Wow. It was. It was probably, I mean, if you were to ask me right now, you, what are my most memorable shows with Autumn? That, that definitely stands up as probably the most memorable just because of being able to see them like only a few years removed from being a lot, an actual band, because I think they broke up in 90 or 91. And I recall, I recall they were booked at a show at City Gardens and they opened and we just missed them. And I, God, I wish I could remember who else was on that bill and I can't. Some of those old shows blend together into one big show for me sometimes. But yeah, I'd missed them live prior to that. So that was my first time seeing them and it was just a, a real treat. So that's interesting. You're playing with Turning Point at a reunion. That's great. Describe some of the landscape of the scene at the time. Who were the big bands? What kind of shows were you playing? And how did you fit into all of that? Well, the fitting in part's kind of weird. Uh, the the thing that I loved about the early 90s, is early and mid 90s, is that you had a lot of different bands doing different things. And the shows back then, every show we played was always like five or six bands. And uh, we would play with, uh, like one show would be like Frail, Introspect, Turmoil, Autumn Brothers Keeper. Wow. Yeah, and it's just real diverse. Like I don't I don't know if that's what's happening now. I don't feel like it's quite that diverse now, but as you can imagine, like Autumn doesn't sound like any of those bands, but neither did Frail. You know what I mean? Those and and yeah, we we those all kinds of crazy diverse shows that happened around that time frame. Um oh, and what was the other this we did a bunch of shows with Despair, Scott Vogel's Scott Vogel's first or second band? Second band. Yes. 
And then, uh, of course, uh, we played with Ashes before people knew who Ashes was. I remember thinking that was like crazy, you know, like a very laid back kind of like, you know, I don't want to call them an emo band, but they were significantly different from other bands we were playing with at the time as well. Uh, and then, of course, the Reading scene was crazy. We would go up there and we'd go up there and open up for Sick of It All and play with a band like SWAT or Under the Eight Ball. Or Yeah, the, the Reading scene was kind of crazy. All those bands were a little bit harder than what we were doing. But as far as fitting in, like it, it was kind of weird. We never felt like we did, even though we clearly did. It was just hard to explain, I guess. So where did it all lead? Uh, so we kept playing shows, did a couple festivals. Uh, eventually, uh, we... <laughs> So the, the revelation thing was actually a very funny moment for us. We had, we had traveled back to our drummer's, drummer's house for practice. And uh, he's like, hey, I got a phone call from this guy in France who says he worked for Revelation. And we're all like, yeah, clearly that's that's a crank call. So Revelation Records we're talking about. Yeah, Revelation Records. So we assumed this was a crank call. We asked for something on you know, company letterhead. Like, <laughs> yeah, like a, a bunch of like, you know, kids like, oh, yeah. Well, enough, it's on your company letterhead, we're not going to believe you. But no, I mean, ended up being this guy was doing A&R, working out of France. He found our 7-inch in a record store. And, you know, this is where I want to just uh, you know, mention Very Distribution was huge for us during this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. John, you know, rest in peace, uh, really opened up a lot of doors for us as well. His distro just... I mean, I, he would call me and say, "Hey, I'm through with I'm through those demos. Give me ten more or twenty more." But uh, yeah, this guy was in a record shop and found our seven inch. By the way, did that blow your mind that this guy found your seven inch in a record store in France? It always blew my mind to hear from anyone overseas, but it was starting to happen more and more frequently in a way that, like, yeah, I mean, it, it did. But it was it was starting to happen. It was just bizarre. Like the record, it wouldn't sell well in Philadelphia, but I'd get like an order from Japan or an order from like overseas. Uh, but when he said he found it in France, I remember thinking like, who do I know that would have carried distro in France? And at the time, it, I didn't think about that. All I could think about was this guy represented Revelation. And <laughs> that was like my, my first thing. I was kind of blown away by it. But um yeah, so to to get to your question, we, we started working with Revelation. We'd already had a full-length record at, the, at that point, and we were talking about future recordings. Uh, they wanted to hear the record that we recorded for Then Nevermore, and uh, they were like, yeah, we, we want this. Can we can we buy it? And I was like, well, you got to talk to Joe. You got to talk to Nevermore, and, and it ended up working out, uh, and then we... Uh, I think we waited about two years, and eventually it came out on the Crisis imprint. And by the time that came out, uh, this was we we were just exhausted. We really were. We were playing out a lot, and there was a lot of time between the the releases. The response uh, to the band, the people that, that were coming out to see us, that the crowd was getting smaller. I felt, and uh, it was just becoming more difficult for us to continue on. Uh, with the same enthusiasm. So we were all working on some side projects. And by the time this came out, we also realized that we felt that there were a handful of bands that were already doing what we were trying to do better than us. And it just, I, I don't know, it just, it kind of started to fall apart. I think we went through a, a lot of lineup changes too. And maybe we weren't on the same page at the time. But yeah, um, the one thing that I regret is as we were closing the doors on Autumn or trying to, Nick Remindelli, had, our guitar player at the time, had suggested, you know, why don't we take a year off and come back and talk about it? And at the time I was like, yeah, whatever. And I didn't listen. But I kind of regret not doing that because I think we just needed, we needed a break. It's what we really needed. We were going, you know, every other weekend playing out, if not every weekend for, what, five years. And it just, it just, it, yeah, it gets to you after a while. 
Did you see a good response after the record came out on Crisis? Actually, no. <laughs> we <laughs> we honestly didn't. And um, it wasn't advertised. And I'm not trying, this isn't my opportunity to, to, to bash Revelation or anything. But I, I think at that point, we also told them what we were doing. Uh, we had a contract. So like, Based off the contract, I had to offer them the the passenger train proposal, which was the next band we did. We had to offer that demo to them to turn mm-hmm. down. And I think once they realized that we were taking a break, that it was just like, well, we're not going to advertise it then. At least I didn't see any ads for it. Uh, it got some good reviews, but not enough to encourage us to get back together. So it just kind of fell by the wayside because the band was breaking up and everybody was moving on to new things. Pretty much, Yeah. Were you disappointed? Did you think, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this again? What was your headspace at the time? Well, to be completely honest, my headspace at that point was completely dedicated to the new band. I had uh, When Autumn was still functional, I started writing a bunch, like I just started playing guitar and writing songs that didn't quite fit what we were doing, but it was something that I really wanted to move forward with. So it kind of makes sense to make this other project a full-time project. So it almost honestly kind of felt like that autumn was now in the way of seeing this other thing through, which was pastor and train proposal. Um, so I was completely dedicated to that. And being that I lived with two members of autumn instinctually, I was just like, Hey, do you guys want to be part of this? And they were like, yeah, they were on board. So when autumn was breaking up, pastor train was already booking shows. Like it was that quick of a transition and it was a completely different sound. So as much as I was disappointed, I was also thrilled to move on. So how was the response once Passenger Train got rolling? Was there a resistance because people wanted Autumn? Were people receptive to the new sound? Oh, uh, people were very receptive to the new sound. A lot of our friends just were very into it. And we, we, you know, we, we branched out into something new and something different. And we, I noticed a lot of new faces at our shows. It was almost as if we you know, started playing for a new crowd. And we immediately went on two different tours, two separate tours in the first year we were together. And yeah, the response was great. Uh, I I couldn't have been more happier, actually, for something to take off as quickly as it did. So what happened? It was (laughs) fairly short-lived. It was. So uh, Rich and, I'm sorry, uh, Mark and Jay were about to graduate from Westchester University and the conversation had popped up, you know, uh, hey, we're going to be graduating soon. We're not sure we want to do music full-time like you do. Um, You know, and and that thing came up. So I, I had to start thinking about possibly getting other members. And uh, I, I tried out some other folks. And uh, while some people really worked out, it just, it wasn't the same. I, and, and a weird thing happens, you know, uh, for myself working with, with Jay, as long as I have, like, I'd realized that I was writing songs for him to play drums to for a very long time. And, and playing with Mark, it just, anyone else playing their parts didn't feel right. And, and it just, nothing else worked out. So we all moved on to different things. Mark, I'm sorry, Jay moved to San Diego. I think Mark moved on to another band. And I think I tried a couple different newer versions of Passenger Train that never panned out. When I was younger and I didn't have as much experience in music, I'd be like, oh man, when like people have these bands, why would they ever break them up? Like it's just, But when you go through enough member changes and you just can't hold it together and it just doesn't feel the same anymore, like I think you just got to let it go. Yeah, yeah. And and trust me, if when it comes to passenger train, I, I really wanted to hold that together, and and so much to the point to where the next two smaller projects that didn't go anywhere was pretty much based off of new versions of those same songs, just expanded on a little bit more and with new players, and and again, it just it just wasn't the same. 
but yeah, like everyone wanted to move on. We, we were at that age, you know, early 20s, experiencing this new version of life and early adulthood. And and maybe for some people, playing music isn't what they saw themselves doing. Whereas for me, you know, I went to a trade school and that was behind me. I got a degree in programming and I didn't want to work. I wanted to be in the band and play music. It was all I had. So I had to keep it going somehow. I had to keep playing. And uh, yeah, I did what I could, you know, and, and it just it just didn't work out. Do you ever think about the fact that you were in a band called Passenger Train <laughs> P- Proposal and now you work for Amtrak? Yeah, uh, it's I didn't plan it this way. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of funny because if you if you just Google Passenger Train, like a lot of different Amtrak you know projects pop up, and I'm like, oh, that's yeah, that's kind of funny how that happened, you know. But I had no intention on on that turning out the way that it did. So there's no like psychological uh, thread to connect there. No, and and if anything, what's even funnier is my you know my foot in the door with Amtrak is I previously worked for another company called Alstom, and Alstom is a European manufacturer of locomotives, and uh, that was my foot in the door with Amtrak. And and again, none of this was planned. It was just I fell in the procurement world and somehow landed you know at Alstom and then at Amtrak and it's it's funny too because the first couple of years at Amtrak it didn't hit me until until passenger train talked about doing a reunion again and I was like wow that's bizarre like I could probably just grab some Amtrak photos and make a t-shirt for our band with it and <laughs> and trust me I thought about doing it but I realized how much trouble I can get in if I tried yeah yeah <laughs> tell the story of Sean McCabe from Ink and Dagger telling everyone that you died oh boy I was hoping to avoid this one now. Um, <laughs> well, no, it, it's funny. Uh, depending on your age, some people don't know about that and, and other people do. So let me think. I, I guess I should probably first explain that uh, growing up in Bucks County, you know, Sean McCabe was one of the Ben Salem kids. So yes. I knew Sean from being one of the kids that hung out with Flagman. And, and Flagman and Unconditioned Response played a show or two together. And uh, so I knew him from that crew. And there was always this old high school you know when you're in high school there's like that certain level of shit talk and you don't really mean it but it's high school stuff and sometimes it carries on sometimes it doesn't uh in this case uh you know it kind of carried on and uh i i just recall coming home from work one day and i lived in exton pa at the time and i came home from work and i think it was i think it was nicole kibbert uh who booked shows at george washington at the time down in dc she's like oh okay you're there good and i'm like yeah, of course I'm here. And she's like, Sean McCabe just went on the uh, straight edge list and said that you died. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that um, is terrible. Yeah. And so the first thing I did was I, I called my my house, you know, my mom's house. And I was like, hey, did you get any phone calls today? And she's like, no, why? And I'm like, just making sure. I was like, if anyone calls you and says something weird, just so you know, I'm okay. And she's like, well, what does this mean? And I'm like, well, I'll come back. So the first thing I thought about was we have shows booked. I got to call these promoters because if I'm getting calls from DC, people might not want to call to confirm that this is true before they cancel us on shows. So I started going through every show that we had. We had a fest coming up in Cleveland. We had shows in out of state. So I I, I cleared all that. And then uh, I get another call from this girl named Janice. And she's also mentioned in this message that I had died. And I think, I think, I forget what the message was about her, but she's like, you know, they're now advertising a benefit show for you. And I'm like, oh my God. And, 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 and without thinking, I'm like, give me the number. Oh God. <laughs> so I call the, I, I think it was a 314 house. There we lived that at the time. Yeah. So I call and I'm like, I don't say who I am. I'm like, Hey, uh, I heard about the passing of, of George Autumn and I heard you're doing a benefit show. And I could hear someone giggling and they're like, yeah. 
what band are you in? I'm like, this is George from Autumn and I would love to play. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of silent for a minute and then they, they hung up and then that's kind of where it ended. But like the funny thing about that is that over the years, uh, there's like, you know, the Philly crew of kids that are our age you know, or my age. Uh, there's been a few people that have come up to me and that have said, you know, hey, I was there when he wrote that. And I'm like, hey, that that's awesome. Why didn't you stop him? You know, like in this yeah. age, can you imagine today if, if I went online and said that someone died? Like, I I can't imagine doing that. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of funny in retrospect. But if you look at it in today's terms, I would be incredibly mad and annoyed at the waste of time of having to call people and people potentially thinking I'm dead. And, and I think that was probably the point to it, you know, um, to, to get under our skin. There was a lot of that going on at the time uh, from a small crew of kids. And uh, for the most part, we had decided as a band not to respond. Uh, we thought if we did, it would like lessen what we're about. And worst case scenario, they're on the straight edge list every day talking about us. And, and I was just like, we well, you know what, let it happen. People, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, rightfully so. I mean, and I'm not trying to knock Sean or anything, but I mean, people knew, knew what those kids were about. They knew that they were about, you know, having a good time and, and making people laugh and being funny. And, and I, I knew that like any shit talk on us wasn't to be taken seriously. And if someone did take it seriously, then shame on them, you know, but um, we did engage at all. We didn't respond to it. We did end up playing the Cleveland Fest, I think a, a week after. And it actually led to one of the best shows we've ever put on. I, um, this is actually a funny story. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was Cleveland 96, which is another story in its own. But uh, we rolled up to the show and I'm not kidding when I say this. I, I recall unloading gear and hearing a kid in the parking lot saying, did you hear that they're still playing even though their singer died? And I'm like, I know they're talking about us. So... Uh, yes. And, and I mean, like, trust me, like, as I'm getting on stage, get, getting ready to play, I remember thinking, I'm like, what the fuck do I say? Half this crowd thinks that I'm dead and it's only been a week. There's no internet for me to, like, go out there and say, you know, this isn't true. I mean, people were responding on that straight edge list, but that doesn't, at the time, that didn't cover a majority of the hardcore scene. Like, a lot of it was word of mouth and phone calls and letters, you know, actual letters in the mail and pen pals and stuff. So, I, I remember walking up to the mic, and it's it's the quietest I've ever heard any show ever that I've been at. And even at that moment, I'm like, I'm just like, I'm not dead. And then everyone, everyone just laughs. And without missing a beat, Mark just starts playing the first riff off the first song for a set, and we just go right on into it. And, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and we had everyone's attention. And it was just, it was great. You know, this huge festival, you know, we're playing this set. Yeah, everyone, I don't know. And it was one of the best shows we've ever put on. And I don't know if that was part of it. I don't know if it was, at the time we were, at the time, I got to say, the guys in the band too, they were just, every show we played, they were just on fire. I couldn't keep up with them anymore. They're, they were such great musicians and they were so tight by that point that I, I could have literally done anything and we probably would have sounded good, you know. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of where that happened. Um, Sean and I never had a chance to really talk about it. Uh, we never really became friends again after that. But just to, you know, end this segment of the interview, uh, one of the times I did get to see Sean was a couple years later. I was on uh, South Street where South meets Front Street right there. And I ran into him. And I think he can dagger already broken up. We made eye contact and we've known each other for years. And we just kind of smirked. And I was like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, good. We talked for a few minutes. We didn't mention anything about hardcore or punk rock. It was just, how are you? 
and we had a conversation and it went really well. And the last thing he told me was, I'm thinking about moving to California to be an actor. And I was just like, you know what? You'd be really good at that. And that's the last time we ever talked. Wow, that's really interesting. Because there's like so many legends about the guy now. And Ink and Dagger is one of my favorite bands. So, wow, imagine him going to California. That would have been some adventure. Yeah, yeah. And and like, as we all know, Eric Wareheim went out there and became very successful. And and Sean, I mean, you know, despite any differences he and I had, I mean, he was a talent. And and he, you, I don't know if the term would be polarizing or just he, he was a very smart guy and knew how to, you know, work a crowd. And imagine how difficult it is for me. You know, Ink and Dagger was a great band. I loved Ink and Dagger. And, and like, there was part of me that felt like I shouldn't, you know what I mean? Because of the, whatever was going on at the time. But yeah, I, even, even after the fact, I listened to them a great deal. Uh, they were a great band. I like your maturity because if it were me, I'd be like, I'm never listening to them or talking to him again. And I wouldn't have been able to get past it. No. And I guess you also have to remember too. And yeah, and trust me, there are moments when I definitely felt like that and would get frustrated and, Someone in the band, the band was really good at, at calming me down. They would talk me down from being too angry about things. But I also, you know, I knew those guys when they were doing crud. And I knew that, you know, they were playing a, a type of show that would, you know, was very crowd engaging. And sometimes that engagement was outside of the boundaries of playing a show. And he was good at it. And I just happened to be the subject of the joke that week, I guess. And it is, it was what it was, you know. But, uh, but again, like, like I said earlier, we never wanted to engage because it just, it wasn't who we were, you know, like we were on them. You know, I don't know. It's just, we were just in a different headspace. So in 2001, you uh, become part of Aim of Conrad, yes? Yeah. So earlier when I talked about the different versions of Passion Train Proposal, I, I did a couple different uh, projects. And one of the projects was with Jack Drummond, who was in Aim of Conrad. Now, what's great about this is I was actually a huge fan of the band before they were looking for a new guitar player. So the the band I was doing with with Jack was a band called Grand as Graves. We did one demo. My buddy John Ziga, who I hope's who I hope is listening to this, uh, he was he played drums in that band. And when that band dissolved, uh, Jack had mentioned that they're looking for a guitar player. And I was like, wow, that band's great. I was like, it'd be such a challenge for me because I'm not that accomplished of a guitar player yet. So I looked at this as two different things. Like not only would I get to be in a band that I love, but it would be a huge challenge for me to play guitar. So I, I did all my homework. I had all their like different CDRs and I'm learning everything I can by ear. And I'm pretty good at it by this point. And uh, I just, I just practiced every night for hours for like two or three weeks. And then I got to try out and, and Jack was like, you know, like more than half the material uh, you're in the band. Yeah. And that's, that's how it came to be. So I joined Emma Conrad and um, yeah, it, they were at a point when I joined that they were transitioning their sound, but I wasn't quite aware of that yet. So I had to not only learn their old material, but then learn their new material, which was even more difficult. <laughs> but uh, it made me a better guitar player. And and the Ama Conrad thing is really what kind of set me on the path to, you know, getting into more guitar-oriented rock and re-listening to old records again for the guitar parts. And, you know, it's how I got to where I'm at today. It really changed my path musically. Because uh, when I joined that band, you know, their, their earlier stuff, to me, sounded and felt a lot like, you know, Drive Lake Jehu meets At the Drive-In meets Refused. And then when I joined the band, they were all listening to Queens of the Stone Age. That was the new shit at the time, you know? So they were like, their actual explanation to me at the time was, we want to be a math stoner rock band. And I'm thinking, that cannot possibly happen. That those are, You can't do that. Well, 
they did. So I had to figure it out. And uh, yeah, and that's what kind of changed everything for me. But yeah, that was a great band. We we I did a, they did two tours before I joined, and I did three or two tours with them. And that's the one band that I had wished really had taken off. And unfortunately, the cards just weren't there. Like the timing was off or something always weird happened. But yeah, that band was great. I still occasionally listen to Emma Conrad as a fan. Yeah, I it, it's not a band I heard until recently because I was in hardcore La La Land at the time. But what a great band. It's like the per, it's this the bands with this sound I always love. It's like that dissonant kind of mathy uh, attitude post-hardcore sound. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but uh, the main, some of the members of Emma Conrad reformed. Uh, it's me, Matt, and the drummer Brendan. Uh, we started a band called Tiny Vices a couple years ago, and Matt, who sang in Emma Conrad, is actually my next-door neighbor. I could probably look out my window and see into his house right now. <laughs> and it's, it's funny, because you know, like I've known Matt now for God, since the early 2000s. And uh, yeah, so sometimes I'll see him when he's like coming home from work and I'll be like, hey, man. And then he'll be like, hey, cool new song you have out. Or we'll talk funny stuff like that. But yeah, that was a huge uh, life changing moment for me joining that band. And that's how you initially got in touch with Iodine, Iodine Recordings, yes? Oh, that's right. We get to talk about Casey on this call, don't we? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> the next hour is dedicated to just Casey talk. How often does Casey text you guys? <laughs> I talk to Casey almost every day. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, but no, this is how I first met Casey was through uh, Emma Conrad. I think we, do you guys remember the basement, Alexander T? No. No. Okay. So up up in Reading, PA, this guy, Alexander T., he sang for Lick Golden Sky. He used to do shows in his house. And I, I don't, I'm trying to remember if I was even in the band yet. Maybe I had to have been. Uh, we played with a band called The National Blue, which was another iodine band. And the guys from National Blue really dug our stuff. And they were the ones that presented our music to Casey. Uh, and I'm, I think the way that it worked out is Casey knew me somehow through Autumn. or knew We knew of each other from the old, you know, older hardcore ties. And I became the the point guy for Aim of Conrad. And that's how Casey and I started working with each other and got close and got familiar with working together. So where did your album fit in in regards to the label ending initially? So we went to go record in D.C. And every, we didn't know anything about the label ending yet. Um, I think this is when things were starting to happen and I'll say this, looking back now, we had no idea. Casey kept it together really well. And I think, and we've talked about this obviously over the years. And uh, after we recorded, we sent him the recording. Now, now keep in mind, we were also a band in transition. So this is when we're doing what's now the Whiskey Slowboat uh, record, which is a somewhat departure of the earlier stuff. It's just a little bit more slowed down, a little bit more grungier. And I, I recall like mailing him a CD and I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting like every day for the phone call. Hey, I got it. It's awesome. Or, Hey, I got it in this. And it's nothing for like a couple days. And a week goes by. So finally I, I call him. I leave him a message. Nothing. I shoot him an email and he writes me back. He's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. Got a lot going on. I've listened to it and I like it a lot. I'll talk to you in a little bit. And then, um, record came out. The CD came out and then, and then he called me and explained what, what happened. And the cool thing that he did is every obligation he had in regards to releasing records, because I think there was another band, maybe it was Jericho? There was another band that was in the same situation we were in. He still put those records out before the label folded. And I always had a tremendous amount of respect for him for doing that. He could have easily just walked away and said, sorry. 
but he lived up to at least that obligation. Um, and when that CD came out and the label folded, my first thought was, we use this to shop for a new label. They're CDs. We can sell CDs at shows. We can go to distros with CDs. We don't have to worry about going through a label. We have them all here. Let's do what we can with it, you know? And that led to some other things later on down the road. But yeah, so that's how that came about, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's great working with the label because Casey does a lot. And it is great that he put out the record, even though the label was folding. So, I mean, were you disappointed or, or were you just like, no, we, we're going to use this to move on to the next thing? Uh, in, in Camp Aim of Conrad, there was a mixture of things. I mean, obviously, obviously, we were all disappointed. A few of us were a little bit more upset than others. I, I just looked at it as, hey, you know, this is going to happen, but maybe this would help us out because uh, maybe it could, we could find something else, you know, maybe a, maybe a bigger label or maybe just another label. Like, I recall just being happy to have the CD and that we could still play shows and we don't have to wait for people to hear it. Because uh, I, I was on the other side of that with Autumn. You know, I waited two years for a record to come out. In this case, it was the opposite. It came out right away. We were able to, you know, have people hear it. But yeah, I, I mean, to, to answer your question, yeah, there was some disappointment, but we tried to keep it as positive as possible. So Aim of Conrad ends, I guess, around 2004, yes? Uh, something like that, yeah. So what happened? Uh, well, I, when I talked about shopping the record, is it kind of funny how things come around in, in cycles or come back you know, in a circle. But uh, we were actually talking to Revelation Records, and there was a guy at the, ta- at the time named James, was an A&R guy out in, out in L.A., and uh, he got us on a tour with another band that, was already signed to Revelation. I think was that Temper Temper. Yeah, so we toured. We went on tour to, to L.A. and back. And um, the other funny thing about when we were out in California is that uh, we we played like three or four shows, and a bunch of Revelation people came out. That's when I got to meet Jordan Cooper in person for the first time. And and when Jordan came out to the Emma Conrad show, I remember being like you know blindsided by it. And all he wanted to talk about was Autumn. <laughs> he was just like, wow, <laughs> you know, but uh, so we thought we were going to sign with Revelation and then we came home. And once we came home, it was it was a grueling tour for us. Um, half of us were excited for the next thing and the other half of us just didn't want to do it anymore. I think uh, I think for a couple of us, it turned into a thing where it was just like a realization of like, I don't know if this is the lifestyle that I want. You know, we were on the road for like three weeks. Um and at the time, you know, I, I wasn't straight edge. We, we were partying every night. And, it's, it, you know, it, it was – the ride home was rough. <laughs> it was it was rough. And I, I just – I just I could – I remember feeling it, that something could happen once we get home. Uh, we had this band meeting where, at the time, I lived in, at a loft at 21st and Spring Garden. And I was like, hey, guys, my loft is only 400 bucks a month. Let's move the whole band into my loft and just go tour. And then uh, – one of the other members was like, how about we just stay a local band and just play the Kyber? And I remember, th- and I remember thinking that sounds great, but that's not going to work for me. Uh, I want to do more than that. So we tried even finding like other members to do it. And obviously that band was so tight personally and musically. It, it, it just wasn't going to work without, you know, the whole band being together. So that's where it fell apart. And we tried getting back together under different names and uh, those were short-lived. It was more of like, let's get together and play these songs again for each other. And we ended up not playing any other shows. But I'm not sure if you ever heard of Mountain Saint or Lions and Lambs. Those were two later versions of the band that never really played out. It's just 
we recorded some things and, and, and practiced a bunch, but nothing else ever came of it. How do you deal with that? Because you're finding yourself in this situation again where you want to keep doing this thing and other people are dropping off because they don't want to live the lifestyle anymore. Uh, so at that point, I had a bunch of riff ideas that I was going to introduce to Emma Conrad. And, and, and let me just say this to Matt and Jack, who wrote the stuff in the end. I just, I couldn't keep up with them on guitar anyway. They were outwriting me and I, the riffs that I had just weren't good enough for the band. So I decided to use these riffs to start something new. And uh, I don't think I'd mentioned this earlier, but I did a band for a short period of time called Firewalker. And it was like a, a heavier version attempt at Emma Conrad with all new players. And, and basically I just kept on playing. I tried different things um, and that led me into different bands, which eventually one of them became Halo with Snakes. Yes. And that's a much later version of, I guess, what Firewalker was, really. Yeah, you never stopped playing. Like, you've always been in bands. I've always been in bands. And in the earlier bands, whether it was Autumn or Passion Train or Emma Conrad, like, I always wanted the most out of it. You know, in some of the other bands that followed Emma Conrad, I, I was getting older. I was getting, you know, my, my, my career was starting to move in a better direction. So some of the other bands, actually, I, I just thought to myself, you know, it's still fun to play. I just still want to play no matter what. But no matter what we do, as long as we're making the most out of what the situation is, I'm still going to want to do it. And it was, it was a weird life transition, too, once Halo of Snakes started, because a handful of us... Uh, had kids or were having kids, you know, we're, we're entering that age of our lives. And so that's why Halo of Snakes, we really didn't do any touring or anything, but we played out a lot locally. And yeah, I love that. I still listen to that stuff too. Like those guys are great. I love playing with those guys. So let's jump ahead a bit. Now, Ritual Earth, this is the latest band. The latest band, but I, I got to tell you, I think this is what I've been looking for for a very long time. This is, for me, the band. It's, yeah, I, I love it. Now, how did you get hooked up with this? Let's dig into this. So after Hello Snakes broke up, um, and keep in mind, there was probably a decade, you know, because during Emma Conrad, I didn't sing in anything, right? I didn't sing in any other bands. Um, there was a, an ad up of a, a stoner rock band called, you know, and actually they didn't have a name yet, um, called Seagrave. Oh, well, we, we became Seagrave. But there was, there was, a, there was an ad up for, for a vocalist. And it was the first time I sang in a long time. So I was extremely nervous about it. Uh, but Seagrave became this band, and uh, we played a couple shows. We played a show with this band called Chip Grinder. And uh, I remember thinking, this band is absolutely amazing. They don't sound at all like what I expected. And I even remember listening to their most recent record. And I believe at the time, Simeon Space King had come out. And I remember thinking, man, if a band like this ever asked me to sing for them, I'd be dumb not to do it. So fast forward a couple years later... Uh, Seagrave is done. I'm not in a band or anything. I'm jamming with some people. And uh, next thing I know, I, I get this message on Facebook and it's just this guy he says, Hey, we used to be in, in a band called Chimp Grinder. We lost our vocalist. We're writing a bunch of new songs. We heard you're available. Do you like this? At the second I heard it, at the time, I was listening to a lot of Elder and Mono Lord. And this was right along those lines. And I mean, like, I'm not kidding when I say I got th halfway through the first song. And I wrote them back. I was like, when's practice? I was just, I, I was on, yeah, I was on board. I was like, yes. And uh, those first couple songs that they sent me is now the Ritual Earth demo. Those songs were recorded before I was even in the band. And I, and I couldn't be happier there. They've been a fully functioning band for eight years prior. So, I mean, all I had to do was just come in and 
finalize things and just be a singer for him. So it was also the first time I was ever in a band where I, I wasn't or didn't feel the need to have to pick up a guitar and say, I got a riff, you know, like those guys are on it. All I got to do is come in and not mess up. You know what I mean? Like all I have to do is just don't ruin it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's got to be the best to just come in and sing. Yeah, no, it really is. Cause every, every other band I've done in the past, I was even with Amy Conrad, I was involved to some extent in the writing aspect. Um, or at the very least felt a need to bring a guitar in and say, how about this? You know, in this band, it was just like, they already have all this amazing stuff. All I got to, yeah. All I had to do was come in and sing to it. Was there like a first tryout type of deal? I didn't know there was, um, this is actually really funny for me anyway. I remember rolling up to the practice spot, which is in Tullytown, PA, and I hear a band playing and I, and I recognize the song. I know it's them. I don't knock on the door or anything. I just walk in, I grab the microphone and I'm like, all right, guys, let's take this from the beginning because I was extremely nervous. So I, I'm thinking if I just go in and act over the top, I won't be nervous anymore and they'll know that I mean business. <laughs> so so that, that's what I did. I, I And, and I, they all looked at me like, Okay. So that was like the first tryout. Like I sang basically to the demos, what became the demo songs. And then um, I was asked to come back. And it wasn't like any, I don't recall there ever being like an official, by the way, you're in. Uh, after the second practice, they wanted to go out the afterwards. So we went out to eat and we we're talking about stuff. And they just started talking about like the first show. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess that means I'm in. This is great. <laughs> Unless they mean a show with someone else, then that's not so great. Maybe this is their way of telling me they're moving on without me. But now, like, I don't recall there being like a congratulations on the award of you know vocal duties for this band. But yeah, and we just started doing it. Did they ever officially tell you that you're in the band? I don't think so. What if like, what if you're not in yet? No, you know what? I take that. <laughs> actually, I take that back. I, I think... Uh, our bass player, Chris, I think he was talking about like a show and then jokingly looked at me and said, by the way, you're in the band. And then kept on talking. I think that actually may have been how I found out about it. But it, but in the early days, things moved awfully quickly because they already had a lot of material and, you know, it was ready. It was ready to go. And I, I feel like my first, well, I feel like the first time they wrote me was in March of 2018. And the first show we played was like this neighborhood party, like in June or July. So it was only a few months later we played our first show. So what do you do to prepare? Do you? Just, I mean, you just have to listen to the demos and what they have and write everything and figure it out, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much the same way I approached anything else in the past, with, with the exception of, you know, some of these songs were pre-recorded, so I had to fit some timings to what they had. But it, it wasn't that much of a challenge. The, the biggest challenge I had was that I knew that this was unlike what I'd sang, sang for in the past. So I wanted to make sure I kept it somewhat consistent with what they were looking for, as well as within my capabilities, right? Um, so there's a lot of like, well, you go through all the timings, you memorize the timings, then you find the key and you hum in key, and then you, you come up with a couple you know, ideas, and then things start to build upon it from there. Um, and usually for the way that I write lyrics is sometimes I'll be singing along to a song, and I'll just kind of mumble some things, and, and a line will just come to me, and it sticks, and I'll base everything around that. you know. And I was very lucky to be able to hit like a weird, like it was a weird time frame where I was able to just write a lot of lyrics at once which usually typically isn't how I operate. But yeah, I, it, once I got the first one down, it just kind of steamrolled from there and just one after another within a couple of weeks. So we've got the record 2020 coming out on Iodine Recordings, right? Yeah. We're excited about that. And folks, it's up for pre-order right now. 
at the Iodine Recording Store at Death Wish Inc. Go and pre-order it. I mean, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Exactly. And the vinyl, the vinyl is gorgeous. Have you seen the pictures online? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, and obviously that's not the actual vinyl, but yeah, uh, three different variants and they all look amazing. There's the, the white and gold and a splatter and then a gold with a black splatter. And they're all records that I would want to have in my collection just to at the very least look at. But no, what, what do you want to know about the record? Aside from the fact that it's clearly the, the best thing I've ever been a part of. Uh, Besides being the best looking record coming out that I can think of, tell us a little bit about recording and what inspiration you put into it. So recording. So again, keep in mind, we, we start this well, we start this version of the band in 2018. We uh, we start recording. Oh God, I can't remember when we started it, but we started recording ourselves. So previous to me joining the band, they had recorded and mixed all of the Trim Grinder records themselves. They were, and that was another huge draw for me. Like the records sounded really good, and they did it all themselves, which meant they weren't held to any time restrictions. Like we have to go book time, we have to wait, we have to go book more time to go back and finish it. Like they would just record at the practice spot. So we did all of the the basic stuff in our practice studio over the course of like a couple months. And uh, Chris Turek, who is our drummer, and he basically does all the engineering and, and most of the mixing stuff. He started mixing everything. And then eventually he came to us and said, look, you know, there's so much going on here that it's it's just above what I'm used to doing. We, we should subcontract this out. So we start talking about who could do the mix for us. And that's how I, I talked about Gradwell House and, and, and Dave over there at Gradwell House ends up mixing the record for us. But the timing on this couldn't be worse because this is uh, we're entering into the early stages of COVID as, as this is happening. So we were mixing the record via email and we weren't even seeing each other in person while this is happening because it's that it's the early days, right? Um, everyone is staying indoors. Everyone is either working remote or not going out unless they're an essential worker. So we mixed the record over over email, just like Everyone writing down feedback and then waiting for the next version of the mix to get sent to us to listen to. Um, so that was the difficult part, but it, it really worked out. I mean, I absolutely love the way the record sounds. Um, now, as far as influences go and, and, and what we were trying to go for, we all talked a lot about not having... I guess what I'm trying to say is we didn't focus on a per song idea as much as we did an album idea. We wanted to make sure the placement of the songs went well into each other because these songs are very diverse. I mean, there are some songs that are very similar to each other, but there's a lot of different things going on there. So we talked an awful lot about records that we enjoyed as an album, you know, like name one record that you listen to from beginning to end. And I, I came up with my list. And for me, it was it was easy. It was, you know, uh, The Cure Disintegration, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Caius, Welcome to Sky Valley, My Bloody Valentine, Loveless. These are all albums that I sit down to listen to as an album. And, and we all agreed that that's what we wanted to do. So we all started coming in with different ideas and, and it just came together. Um, now, don't get me wrong. There were some parts of the process where we were like, well, what about this? What about that? But yeah, I mean, that's that, that was the goal. That And then we also went back a second time and we really wanted to focus on putting together an album that sounded good on headphones. And I just, I just remember as a kid growing up in the 70s, my parents listened to all their favorite records on headphones and I wanted people to have, or I'm sorry, we wanted people to have that experience, you know, uh, especially when we approached iodine with doing vinyl, you know, 
we I imagined we all imagined like someone having the record, putting it on, looking at the lyrics, putting on the headphones, and just diving into it. Like that's what we wanted, and that's what I think we did. Excellent. Yeah, I I do the headphone thing too because no one listens to anything not on headphones anymore. No, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I know some people that do, but it's not talked about in the same way that it was, you know, or, or that I remember as a kid. Yeah. You know, like the big headphones that cover the ears. And, and I'm sure you've seen all the memes of like, you know, the Bill Clinton meme, he's got headphones on and a bunch of records still on the floor. Yeah. And, but I, I don't, yeah, it's not as widely talked about, at least not as much as I would like to see. So the record's coming out. We're very excited about that. Yes. Very excited about that. Yeah. And what plans do we have? Tours, shows, festivals, arenas? <laughs> I wish it was arenas. <laughs> no. So, I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're older dudes, you know, we're all married. Well, most of us are married with kids, so we can't do the full time touring thing, but uh, we definitely have applied for a bunch of different festivals and uh, we have, uh, we have a couple shows coming up actually. As a matter of fact, um, in March, we're doing a couple shows. One is doom and bruise fest. That's March 18th. That's up in uh Jewett city, Connecticut. And that's three days of just stoner doom bands. And it's, I can't wait for that one. There's a bunch of great bands that I want to see. Uh, and then a week and a half later, we're playing uh, the King's Land up in Brooklyn. Uh, that's with Plague Years. And I hope I'm pronouncing this right, right some Nuri. Uh, Fellahin Fall. That's going to be uh, March 24th. And then we're already booked for Maryland Doom Fest 2022, which is in June. There's one other show we have at the end of April, also in Maryland, uh, I'm still waiting for the official announcement for that to come out. I'm not sure of all the bands on it, but we got those couple shows happening. And then our bass player, Chris, is also booking a three-day weekend, the first weekend of June. We're doing Providence, Boston, and then we're going to do either New York or Philly. And we're taking a Philly band by the name of Graycell with us. And I know we're talking to George Radford from Edict. I think we're going to do a show or two with Edict. And I don't know who else we're playing with, with in Boston, we were trying to get Cortez on that show, but I think that they're busy. So there's a few other bands up there I'm going to reach out to. But yeah, it's like seven or eight shows between now and June. And that's not even talking about the other festivals that we've applied for. And we're hoping that comes through. That sounds great. And it must be great to still be doing music in this capacity. I mean, you've got a new record coming out on a great label. You've got plenty of shows lined up. Was there ever a point where you thought you weren't going to do this anymore? Uh, oh, that's a great question. Maybe, um, actually, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, there, there have been moments in my life where I thought to myself, okay, it's time to tone it down a bit, you know, and, and, and right now my daughter's birthday is the, the 17th of February. She's going to be 11. So she's at that age where like, you know, family comes first. And I often think about, you know, how much time do I have to still do music? And my wife is extremely encouraging for me. She's like, no, that's your thing. Like, you got to keep up with it. Um, and I've always thought to myself, you know, as long as I can still listen to music, I'm always going to want to play music. I, I still play guitar every day for about an hour in my office, you know, and I still listen to music all the time. I'm still a fan of a lot of bands. I'm still a fan of Ritual Earth. Like, I get to go to practice and hear those guys play those songs. You know, like, and, I, and trust me when I say this, that's an awesome feeling. If you can say that about the band you're in, don't ever leave it. Yeah. 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 But um, the, the the other funny thing, too, is I, I purposely 
bought a Stratocaster about a, uh, two years ago for the sole purpose of, and I'm not a Fender guy, I'm not a big Strat guy, but I bought one because I was like, you know what, I'm going to hop on YouTube and learn a bunch of blues licks. And if I'm going to do that, I want to do it on a Strat. So yeah, so I, I still play all the time. Like I, I just, I can't imagine not being involved to some extent uh, until like, yeah, unless unless I can't hear it anymore. If I lose my hearing, then that's probably when, I'll, when it'll stop for me. I love it. I love that you've always kept doing it and that you have the support of your family, too, so that you can keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And and trust me, it's huge when your family is into it. And, and what's what's awesome is my daughter loves it. She'll ask me for a Ritual, with, Ritual Earth t-shirt because she wants to wear it to school and talk about her daddy. And, you know, and it's, <laughs> I think that that's awesome. You know, like, I love that. Yeah, I love that. So you're sober. Yes, I am. Uh, it's been eight years uh, this past November. Now, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. And second of all, I want to talk about this because I am a fellow sober person, and I think it's great to share these stories because I don't know about you, but back when I was still killing myself with drugs and alcohol, I didn't know where to turn or even where to start to try to get away from it all. Yeah, my, my and my, my biggest problem was, was drinking. I, I never... I never got heavy into drugs, obviously tried certain things and, you know, but alcohol was what really did me in. And and, and looking back at it now, I feel like it, it took a decade away from me that, you know, I often wonder what I could have done with that, you know. Um, but yeah, for me, it just, it became a weird thing where I was just like, it started off as uh, several attempts to quit drinking, thinking I'll just cut out certain days or I'll quit for a week or two, then I'll go back to it. And especially being straight edge and everything, like, it's kind of bizarre. I, I think it's bizarre that I fell into it because I, I knew the dangers of it. Uh, I came from an alcoholic family. I was an Alateen, if you know what Alateen is. Yep. I was an Alateen when I was a kid. I should have known better. And, and I, you know, I, my, my father was an alcoholic and I remember thinking, you know, that'll never happen to me. And, you know, it, it, it took a lot of years. Like the further away I get from when I quit drinking, the more I realized it, it was a problem. Initially for me, uh, the, the, the first reason why I quit for good was that I got sick and tired of waking up and feeling instant regret and then having that text message come in. And when I see who the text message is from, I immediately remember what happened. I'm like, oh, God, what did I do or say? And when it got to a point where people were like, do you remember doing that? And I'm like, no. And uh, so for me, it turned into a thing where I realized I, I can't control what I do when I drink. But I can control when I do it. And now I'm going to choose not to. So I, I remember this happening around Thanksgiving eight years ago. I don't, I never wrote down a day. I never, like, it was never, that was never important to me. It was just important to, to quit and stay quit. And um, yeah, again, the further away I get from it, the more I'm like, wow. Uh, I thought it was just this stupid little thing that I had a little problem with. But no, like I was drinking like five, six nights a week for like 10 years. And, um, wow. yeah. Um, and it was never like, I don't know. Well, I, I was going to say it just didn't seem like a problem at the time. Cause again, for me living in the city, living in Philadelphia, going to shows all the time, going to, you know, everything that I felt like everything I was doing, uh, alcohol was involved, but it turns out I was doing alcohol related things so that I could drink, you know? And, yeah. and one of the, one of the weirdest things that ever happened, like I remember I had, I had quit drinking for about two years and my, my wife, had texted me and, and I worked at 30th street station for Amtrak at the time. And she was like, Hey, uh, if you, uh, if you can get out of work for a little bit, let me take you out to lunch for your birthday. We'll, we'll go to uh cantina in South Philly. And uh, I immediately get excited. 
And I'm like, yeah, I'll take a cab to Cantina. I can't wait to get there. And I'm not kidding when I say this. As I'm getting out of the cab, I realized I'm not going to be ordering a pitcher of margaritas. I'm going to have to enjoy this food sober. And I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> you know, what I mean? It became this weird thing. And I'm like, oh, my God. All of these things that I said that I loved doing was revolving around the fact that alcohol was there. And, yeah. I, and I also knew it got bad when uh, – what was that? Oh, Boot and Saddle. Have you guys been to Boot and Saddle? Yes. They were having shows there for a while. And I walked in one night on – I forget who I went to go see. And I saw my buddy there as bartending. And he – this is a true story. He he. As soon as I walked up to the bar, he dropped you know my drink down. And my drink was always you know double jack on the rocks. He dropped it down. He's like, hey, the first one's on me. And I remember thinking, I was like, it's it can't be good when bartenders just – give you your first drink because they know what you drink and they, you know what I mean? I'm like, man. So I told him, I was like, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to quit drinking now. He pulled it away and gave me a, a ginger ale and yeah, the rest has been pretty much that. Wow. Yeah. So, and that's the other thing that's odd too, is you still playing shows. We play a lot of bars and there are moments where I'm like, it's time for me to go home. Not because I'm tired, not because I don't want to be here, but because everyone's drinking and I just, there are reasons why I shouldn't and can't stay. So I, I do, you know, the Irish exit, you know, I'll, I'll say good, goodbye to a few people, give a couple hugs and then get out of there, you know, like, and it's, trust me, it's, it gets tough, but I will say this for anyone out there that's looking to quit. Like it gets easier. And, and over time, like as provided you acknowledge why you quit and why it's a good idea to not go back. And I think uh, it's, people shouldn't be embarrassed about it. I, I feel like, I feel like it's not talked about that often. Um, every so often in my age group, being in my 40s, you know, it's it's always heartbreaking when you get that text message or an email that someone else had passed away. And what happened? Well, we're not talking about it. And the second they say we're not talking about it, you know why they're not talking about it. And I'm like, you know what? <sighs> this could be avoided. Maybe we should talk about it. Maybe we should have that conversation and say, hey, if, if you want to quit, and, and for any of my friends listening, my, my, I'm always open. You can call me. You can come by. We can go to the diner. Uh, I'm more than willing to talk to anyone that has an issue or just wants to not do something that involves alcohol. Um, and if I'm not the person you want to go to, find someone. There's it, nothing wrong with it. Yeah, there's resources out there, which I didn't realize. There's many different methods. It's just uh, asking for the help is the hard part or realizing that you need the help. Like I was as bad as it comes doing some pretty wild stuff. And I still thought, well, I have a job and I pay my rent, so I'm fine. Yeah. I, at the very least, the one thing I will say is I wasn't, I wasn't a guy who needed a beer in the morning. I never turned into that, but I, like I said, I was five or six nights a week, man. And I mean, it was just what we did, you know, it was bizarre. Um, and, and, and every night, every night we closed the bar and, uh, yeah, bizarre to look back on now. Is it weird being in a doom band, which is often associated with weed and stoner rock and all that stuff, but being sober? Uh, yes and no. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's weird because by this point, like I'm just at a different point in my life where it's like, I'm a husband, I'm a father and I sing in a band and I just, and we're, I'll, I'm sure you've probably picked up on this on the record. We're not one of those bands that talks about that. So it's not, you know, it's not part yeah. of who we are. And I would even go further to say, like, we thoroughly enjoy being part of that scene. But sometimes we don't even consider ourselves like a stoner rock band. We're, we're a heavy band that does a lot of things. 
And this is where we found, you know, a home and people that really enjoy what we do, you know, people that enjoy heavy music. Uh, I see other bands do it, you know, and it's part of their t-shirt aesthetic or whatever they, you know, do merch wise. And that's, that's fine. You know? Yeah. So it's not like you're sleep or something. You're not tied <laughs> into it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, we're not, we're not tied to any of those things. And none of the lyrics talk about it. It's yeah. It's almost like at this point, like I, and again, like my issue is alcohol. So I don't even think of weed as being like a, a thing I need to worry about. You know, like for me, weed was always the thing where it's like, if I'm going to smoke weed or do anything like that, I'm going to go home and do it before I put on a funny movie. You know, and it was never like a, I have to do it so many nights a week or I'm going to go out to go do it. It's, it was a different, there's a different culture for it. So for me, it was always the alcohol thing. And uh, of course, like when you sing in a band and if someone likes your band, the amount of free drinks you turn down. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. Like I've, I've definitely had people like just, Hey, I got a shot. Come do one with us. And I'm like, ah, how about you do it, buddy? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, that's the only part that gets weird, but that, you know, the one thing I will say is I've never run into the problem where if I just, openly say, Hey, I'm recovering. No one's ever given me shit for it. They respect it. And you're like, Oh, that's awesome. And right. the cool thing about this scene that we're part of now is like, you'd be surprised in, in the stoner doom scene. There's a lot of kids that were old hardcore kids in the nineties. I've run into a lot of people that they're like, Oh, Hey, I remember you from, you know, like that Middlesex show we went to, you know, like, so they get it. If I just, you know, some people, you know, if, if I say I'm not drinking, they just might think I'm so straight edge and it's not, a topic of conversation at that point. It's just right. what I'm doing now. Let's recap, gentlemen. Now, number one, we've got, you said you've got an autumn retrospective coming out. Yeah, I don't think we've talked about that yet. Um, so autumn never put together a full-length record. Uh, this is a retrospective that focuses on the two full-length records that we've recorded but didn't come out. They came out as EPs. And uh, the cool thing about this is Joe Kazemka, who runs Hellminded Records, put out the Autumn 7-inch many, many years ago. So this is also like a passion project of his as well. He was very much part of the band. And when he approached me with the idea, I was like, yeah, sure. I would only do it with you, so let's go ahead and do it. That uh, pre-orders are up. If you go to hellminded.com, I'm sure you'll find the pre-orders for the Autumn record. And I think that is shipping soon. I'm not quite sure when, when the ship date is, but I know it's very soon. Yes. So let's go and pre-order that. I mean, come on. Why would you not? Yeah. This wasn't planned to have an Autumn and a Ritual Earth record come out relatively the same time. But it's for me, I mean, I'm the happiest guy on, on Earth right now. I'm like I get two albums coming out, two different bands, literally 20, 25 years apart, but... Uh, <laughs> Isn't it funny how things align like that sometimes? And it's like, you don't even do anything. It just happens like that. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's... Yeah, it is funny how that happens. And and it's it's funny how small the world becomes, too, when you realize, you know, the, the amount of people that I've talked to about the Autumn record are also talking to me about the Ritual Earth record. And it's... Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, I'm thrilled to death, don't get me wrong, but yeah... It's crazy. I, I get to I get to have two records that I get to put on my wall in the next month or two. And Ritual Earth 2020, up for pre-order right now at the Iodine Recording Store. Go to deathwishinc.com store, search for Ritual Earth. You'll find it. Yeah. And at the very least, if you have trouble finding, and, and seriously, you probably shouldn't have trouble finding you know, deathwish.com. But you know, if you Google Ritual Earth, we have our own link tree up that links to everything, all of our music, all of our social media. Uh, the, the first thing that you see when you go there is actually uh, a link to the web store where you can you can uh, pre-order the album. There is a 
possible autumn reunion happening in August. Um, we are entertaining the idea of doing it. We, we are talking to some people. Um, that's still in the early chatter stage. But if that happens, obviously, I'll post all over the world about it. Um, but no, that's pretty much it. We've covered everything. Thank you again for having me on. It's, it's, it's been a thrill. Uh, I listened to the, the show. I haven't listened to the Wall Street one yet, but I listen to the show often. So thank you again. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, George, thank you so much for coming on and giving us your time tonight. You know, I'm glad I finally got to speak to you because as we mentioned before, I kind of knew you through other people, but I'm glad we got to have this conversation tonight. Yeah. And if there's one thing I love talking about, it's it's me. <laughs> exactly. If you want to keep going for another six or eight hours, I got it in me. Let's do this. <laughs> like, this is the best part about podcasts. Who would not want to talk about <laughs> themselves for 60 to 90 minutes? <laughs> I'm sure I'll get that email. Hey, George, we had to edit it down to just 15 minutes. I hope you're cool with that. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, I actually played the last autumn reunion in 2009, <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. I was in Crash of 64 at the time. Great band. If there is another autumn reunion, how about me and an acoustic guitar? Actually, yeah, you could do that. Uh, Josh Alvarez did that for the uh, Pastor Train reunion. He played a solo set. We would certainly entertain the idea of you coming out. Okay, cool. I'll do some covers, you know, it'll, uh, maybe some comedy in between. It, it could be awful. Oh, no, that'd be great. <laughs> if you do comedy, I'll come up with you and, and we'll do, do a little something. I don't know. We'll work out a routine. We'll do a bit. Yeah, we're going to figure it out. But uh, George... Thank you again. Great conversation. And uh, we look forward to more from Ritual Earth and from Autumn. Awesome. Thank you guys again so much. I appreciate it. There you have it, folks. George Chamberlain. That was a great conversation. It was nice to finally talk to George because I've been in the room with him plenty of times, but I don't think I've ever formally met him. Love Autumn, love Ritual Earth, love Aim of Conrad, love the whole conversation. And who doesn't love a good ink and dagger story, right? I mean, come on, I live for that. So yeah, I'm looking forward to more from Ritual Earth and apparently looking forward to more from Autumn. That reunion may be happening. So thank you so much, George, for coming on the show. Now, folks, you know what it's time for. That's right. The Pop Culture Minute. This is where we break down the hottest topics in pop culture. Who's in? Who's out? Who's canceled? Who's not? And folks, we've got big news. You know what happened. You saw it. Everybody's heard about it by now. The Oscars. Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage for making a joke about his wife. Here's the clip. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. No! I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I can, oh, okay. That was the greatest night in the history of television. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there was a lot of debate about this. There was even a debate in a group text of mine where someone claimed it was fake, and I was like, no way. No way. You can tell 
from Chris Rock's reaction after that happened, that he was genuinely shook. And there's been plenty of debate. How could they do this? This makes things dangerous for comedians and so on and so forth. And my opinion, well, all is fair in love and war and love is a battlefield. You got to take responsibility for what you say. And also when you're an A-list celebrity, you can basically do whatever you want anyway. So let's look at some of the best picture nominees. Okay. Belfast, never heard of it. Coda, never heard of it. Don't look up, not watching that. Drive My Car, never heard of it. Dune. Now, okay, Dune is the one movie on this list that I have seen. I really enjoyed it. I have no clue if it won. King Richard, never heard of it. Licorice Pizza, no thanks. Nightmare Alley, never heard of it. The Power of the Dog, never heard of it. And West Side Story, no thanks. There you go. That's the Pop Culture Minute. We deliver to you the latest and greatest pop culture news. I just don't watch a lot of movies and TV anymore. What can I say? I'm so busy with this show, you know, and I spend a lot of time on Twitch. Well, let's check in. You know, this is not a great time of year for me. I felt weird this time last year. I feel weird this time this year. Life in cycles, I guess. You know, it's leading up to another year clean and sober for me. That anniversary comes in May, and I usually feel a little squirrely around this time, and it feels weird not having Tommy on the show anymore. You heard the last episode. Tommy has left the show to dedicate more time to his family, and if I'm being honest, I thought that was going to happen at some point because the show takes up more and more time as it grows and grows. I just didn't think it was going to happen now. But of course, Tommy and I are still dear friends. And listen, the guy's a dedicated father and husband, and his family comes first. You heard on the show, he's not taking this job either, because that would be taking more time away from his family. And it feels weird to be doing the show alone, you know, because Tommy and I started this thing. But that's the way it goes. We're still here. The show goes on, and we've got a lot of great things planned. There's going to be some exciting guest hosts. And we've got a lot of really awesome interviews coming up. So stay tuned. I am here and I will continue to be here as long as I'm alive, I guess. And as far as a new co-host, the way I feel right now, probably not, probably not ever. You know, I feel like I've been through a divorce and I just can't imagine moving on with somebody else. But we're going to have exciting guest hosts, like I mentioned, and the show will continue every week. And that's good enough for right now. You know, never say never. I'll never say there will never be another co-host, but this is the way it is right now. And that's it. So let's read a new review. We have an excellent new review from Matt Scanlon. He says, until the end, five stars. I've been with these guys since the beginning. All Else Failed posted about a podcast with their own Pat Shannon. I checked it out and the rest is history. Keith and Tommy don't have egos and aren't trying to cool guy anyone. This is something that is lost in the podcast world. They engage with guests in a way that reveals a little humility, and I think that's important. Cheers to both of these guys. P.S. I toured in All Else Failed's van, and let me tell you, wink. (laughs) Yeah, Matt, thank you so much. That was a great review, and that's all we've got for this week, folks. So remember to rate and like 
and subscribe and follow and give reviews like Matt here has done and all of that other wonderful stuff. A little bit goes a long way. And that's it. So we're back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening. And until next time. Yay!